Welcome to Page One. My name is Abhishek Makund. We're joined today by Stephanie Lutert, the Director of the Mexico Security Initiative at the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Lutert is the lead writer for Beyond the Border on the Lawfare blog and is the instructor for a year-long public policy class on Mexico's migration challenges at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and had previously worked for three years as a research associate in the Latin America Studies program at the Council on Foreign Relations, where she focused on emerging security, immigration, economic, and energy issues in the region, with a particular focus on Mexico. Professor Lutert's writing can be found in Foreign Policy, the Dallas Morning News, the Harvard National Security Journal, the Princeton Journal of Public and International Affairs, and America's Quarterly. All right, thank you for your time today, Professor. Of course, thanks so much for having me on. So President Trump, as well as much of the Republican Party, have launched a coordinated campaign against thousands of asylum seekers making their way to the United States from many Central American countries. The group of people, referred to as the caravan, has slowly made its way toward the U.S.-Mexican border. As they get incrementally closer, the level of vitriol against them has increased. Before we get there, let's get to the de- before we get to those details, let's start at the beginning. What kind of people are in the caravan, and why are they coming here? Sure. So. As you mentioned, there's right now there's not just one caravan, there's actually multiple caravans moving north through Mexico, mostly coming in uh, on the southern, kind of the southern Pacific coast of Mexico. Now, this is perhaps the first time that we've seen so many people spontaneously come together in a lot of ways and move through the country. It's not the first time that we're seeing Central American migration in general. In fact, this past month, um, so in September of this year, so not this, not October, but September, there were 50,000 people who arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border. So when you look at the numbers in the caravan, uh, and those are the 50,000 who are apprehended. So when you look at the numbers of 5,000, 3,000, 7,000, by comparison, this is really, you know, 5 or 10% of the total number of people who would normally reach the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm-hmm. What's different now is that it's so visible. So then it becomes a question of, well, why... Why are people deciding to come together to form these groups and to move through the country or move Mm -hmm. through Mexico to the U.S.? And there's a few reasons um, that you might, if you were a migrant in Honduras, that you might, you know, think about doing this. And the starting place has to be you have to be um, unhappy enough in your current life that leaving your community, your family, your friends, your job has to be an appealing decision. So that has to be the starting place, that the conditions are so bad mm-hmm. that there are thousands of people across Central America that that decide every month, I can't, my future isn't here, I can't make enough money, I can't get my children an education, I can't be safe, so I need to leave and go elsewhere to provide the economic prosperity or the security. Um, so that has to be the starting point of kind of understanding what's going on. From there, uh, a lot of the migrants that migrate hire a smuggler. It's between, say, seven and $10,000 right now. And Central Americans, many of them don't have that kind of money. I mean, that's a lot of money for a regular uh, American to just pull out of their bank account mm-hmm. and, and put down. And for someone who's making, you know, on a small subsistence farm, that's a really large amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're looking at, right now, the people in the caravan are those who w- aren't traveling with smugglers. Um, and so for people who might normally go alone because they can't afford a smuggler, then you have the question of do you go alone and face all of the dangers and the migration authorities in Mexico by yourself, or do you band together and move as a group? 
And it seems that thousands of people have decided that's really the way to do it. And if you have that many people, you do have more power. You can walk across international borders like they mm -hmm. did going into Mexico. You can walk through checkpoints like they did on the highway going north uh, from the city of Tapachula to the city of Arriaga. Um, you have states that donate buses to, to move you, as uh, the government, the governor of Veracruz promised, although didn't follow through with. So you have a lot of benefits and visibility as you move north. But you also have the flip side of that visibility, which is that, as you mentioned, the Trump administration and other governments have uh, can see you and will have, and it, you can become a symbol playing into a kind of Mexican politics or, or U.S. politics. In particular, in this case, uh, it seems to be playing into the U.S. midterm politics and the dynamics around migration right now. So you mentioned that some of those economic problems that these migrants might have or these asylum seekers might have. Um, what contributed to those kind of problems? Yeah, it depends how long, how far <laughs> back you want to go uh, to really try to understand. Now, if you look at Central American migration in general, historically, you saw the first big wave at the end of the 70s into the early 80s when uh, especially Guatemalans and Salvadorans who are fleeing the civil wars in their countries left, uh, went into the United States, or went into Mexico Guatemalans by the thousands lived in refugee camps in southern Mexico. And then you had uh, kind of Salvadorans and, and Gua some Guatemalans just moving straight through Mexico to the United States to seek asylum. And that was really the first uh, big migration of people out of Central America to Mexico and the United States. Mm. Now, after that, you had a range of other factors that came in. The wars ended in the mid-90s, so then it's kind of the question begins of why did then people continue to go? Well, one reason is that uh, people who stayed in Central America saw their parents or their siblings doing really well in the U.S., mm -hmm. and conditions in a post-war Central America weren't that great for a lot of people. And so those that next generation thought, well, I want to go back and see my mom, or I want to... Uh, go make money like my sister is doing. So you have, or it's really still not that safe here. Um, there's still a lot of violence and my cousin is doing really well in Los Angeles. Maybe I'll go there. So you have this this next wave of people who are, who are leaving, kind of following these generations that left during the wars. And their reasons are a lot more diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, fast forward to today and you have even more reasons. Um, you have, again, the people who are fleeing violence, um, and seeking asylum, and that violence might be gang violence from MS-13 or Barrio de Siocho. You have people fleeing domestic violence and family violence, uh, where they were in a bad relationship or were being abused by a family member, and they see, again, likely someone in the U.S., say a sibling or a parent, and they want to go reunite with that family member um, and stay with them, but they're really fleeing this violence that was in their kind of their everyday life back in Central America. You have discrimination for, uh, for often it's young people who are LGBT. Um, it's discrimination that often can lead to death, especially you see that a lot with trans migrants. Mm -hmm. um, they face incredible discrimination in their countries of origin and so often leave and go to the U.S. Uh, to seek asylum for that. That's kind of on the violence and discrimination side. You also have... Uh, you have a, also a, a large group of people who are leaving for economic reasons. Now, if you that's a big kind of category in itself, and it often doesn't get broken down, of what do we mean by economic? Mm -hmm. 
And there's a lot of factors that can come into play with that. There's a, a change in climate, first of all, mm -hmm. in Central America. And so you have a lot of, well, take Honduras, for example, which is where most people are coming from. About 28% of the population, so one in every four, one of every four Hondurans is employed in agriculture. And the coffee industry and bananas are two of the largest sectors of the economy. Now, that, that, that kind of brings you, you have two vulnerabilities there. And you see this across all of Central America. Mm -hmm. The first is that if you have an agricultural dependent economy, you're dependent on the weather, especially rain, mm. or too little or too much is going to hurt your production. And so what we're seeing now is uh, the beginnings of, of, of climate change, mm. of more unpredictable weather, of raising, rising temperatures, mm -hmm. um, more extreme storms. And there's a part right in the center of Central America called the Dry Corridor. And it's really prone to the droughts that come along with El Nino, the kind of uh, phenomena that causes drier conditions in the region. Mm -hmm. And so you have small farmers, the rain doesn't come, mm. and a lot of them are using some of either the money to buy their food or they're eating the food they grow, and now they don't have any food. Um, and then the other vulnerability you have in an agricultural-based economy is that you have uh, you have to take your if you're going to sell your products you have to take them to a market and sell them. Mm -hmm. Now these global these commodity prices aren't determined at the local level they're global, mm -hmm. depending on the supply and demand of these commodities around the world. So what that means, particularly for the coffee industry, is right now the price of coffee is very low, and the production the price of producing coffee in Honduras is is actually higher right now than the cost they can sell it for. So you also have this massive industry that's now losing money on its production mm -hmm. of coffee. And so even if you have the same, the same farm, it's been producing coffee the same way for 25 years mm -hmm. or more, based on whether the price of coffee is up or down, which they can't control, that's going to determine the amount of income that they get every year. And right now, with the coffee price being so low, that's where you see a lot of this, you see some of structural poverty um, that's happening across Honduras, and it's certainly pushing out a new kind of generation of migrants who are going to Mexico to work or continuing on to the U.S. So in sum, to answer your question, there's so many reasons why people are migrating right now. It always looks more complicated than it does on the surface. Many of these factors are interrelated, mm -hmm. um, but there's, those are kind of the, the baseline conditions that are pushing people to come together and, and to form these caravans. So what, what has their local governments done to kind of combat this because they couldn't have just allowed these people or they don't want these people to just be leaving in these mass migrations do they it's kind of a complicated question i think on one hand if you're honduras's government uh, if you're president orlando and you're looking at these people leaving on one hand you're gonna say this is embarrassing to see so many of people of my country <laughs> who are fleeing my country because mm. my government can't put the conditions in place to uh, keep people here and to create the right conditions for them. On the other hand, uh, there's also a debate that you see about whether migration is also kind of an escape, like an escape valve. Mm. It's re releasing a lot of economic pressure. So uh, if people stayed, the economy isn't growing you might see conditions look even worse. Instead, if they can get to Mexico or the US and send money home through remittances, they're gonna be back investing in the communities. Mm. So migration's also, 
in a way, is a tool for economic development in marginalized areas. If remittances can come back and, and the families invest in education or uh, in kind of their general well-being, if they can feed their kids three meals a day, et cetera. So there's, there's that as well, where if you're a politician, it also takes a little pressure off you. So mm -hmm. instead of having that grow into this in, intense discontent, mm -hmm. it, a lot, some of that can be perhaps funneled through migration into releasing that, that tension a little bit. Now also, you, earlier you said that some Mexican governmental officials are providing buses or mm -hmm. uh, safe passage maybe. Um, what... Is, is Mexico accepting any of these uh, migrants, or are they just kind of like trying to get them moving and get them towards the U.S.? Um, I, I wouldn't say they're, well, it, again, it's a little complicated because the, it's hard to figure out exactly what Mexico's official <laughs> policy has been on the caravan. Uh, to give you an example, when the caravan arrived to the bridge, um, they broke through the Guatemala barrier. This is, I'm sorry, this is the Guatemala-Mexico border bridge. Mm -hmm. They broke through the Guatemala side, rushed across the bridge, and the Mexican side held strong. So all of a sudden you have this bridge with 5,000 people standing on the bridge, and the federal police were saying, you're not passing through here. They were the ones who put up the barricades and said, nope, you're not crossing on the bridge. Okay, so that looks like they're putting, they're blocking entrance into the country for the caravan. Mm -hmm. But then the next day, or maybe later that day, they started to just go around and cross the river walking <laughs> or swimming. Mm -hmm. And it's not that once they got to the other side, the federal police or the, the migration authorities, which is the body that's in charge of apprehending migrants, it's not that they kind of apprehended and detained those migrants who were crossing. In fact, the opposite, they kind of just watched them go by. So it's unclear, for example, in that specific incident, that kind of symbolized for me this, these tensions of the government saying, look, we're doing something, we're holding steady, but yet also at the moment they <laughs> literally right below the bridge are crossing, they're just letting it happen. Now, that kind of continued as the first caravan went north, they were going up the highway and they would hit these checkpoints, these federal police checkpoints, and the caravan would have to stop, and they'd negotiate, and eventually the federal police would back off and let them go through. So it's kind of this confusing, well, what are they actually trying to do? Are they trying to stop them, or are they trying to uh, make it a little more difficult or make a show of force but not actually do anything? Mm -hmm. um, one thing that they did do, however, is this plan, uh, Estas en tu casa, which is you're at home. And in that plan, they provided uh, temporary work visas. They said if anyone came to an INM office, which is the migration office in Mexico, and registered themselves and said they were in the country, they would be eligible to receive a temporary work visa where they could work in uh, kind of the two states where they were. So the state, they just arrived to a state of Oaxaca, and they'd been passing through the state of Chiapas. Mm -hmm. So it said if you stay in those two states, Chiapas and Oaxaca, you can get a temporary work visa. Uh, I think that was that was really the main change. And then it also promised, of course, you can still seek asylum in Mexico. So it, it promised kind of a long-term path for people mm. who do come and seek asylum or kind of, they call it refugee status, um, but it looks the same as the U.S. asylum pr process uh, within the country. And they, they said that over 2,000 Central Americans have already sought refugee status in Mexico. So you do have people staying. Um, I think what will be the most interesting to watch is now that the caravan's reaching Mexico City, it's what happens there. 
-hmm. because the past caravans kind of ended there and a lot of people stayed and sought refugee status there in, in the city or went off to look for work and then it kind of splintered depending on which route people were taking from there. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll, we'll have to watch and also the kind of government's response and how uh, they plan to address it will be what happens now that so many people are arriving in Mexico City. So what are conditions like within this kind of caravan of people? Like, is it is it really like, are people struggling? Are they hungry? Are they tired? How are they feeling right now? I imagine they're very tired. Yeah. Um, I'm not, well, not with them right now, so I, I can't uh, provide any on the ground, but they're definitely tired for people who who hike or who walk a lot. Imagine walking in 100 degree heat, this is Southern Mexico. Imagine walking between 15 and 20 miles a day on a highway in that type of heat, usually getting up around 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Uh, it's really, it's really grueling. I will say that I walked uh, for an afternoon with a group of Central Americans as they were doing something similar, but not as part of the caravan in Southern Mexico. And by the time I was uh, leaving, my shirt was totally soaked with sweat. I was starting to feel a little kind of dizzy because the heat is so intense. And if you're not stopping, you just really, I mean, it's it's really you can feel you can get heat stroke pretty fast in those conditions and of course it's not just that you're you're not usually walking in the best gear mm -hmm. um, people are in cheap shoes you're you're carrying all your belongings on your back so you have a heavy backpack um so it's and you're kind of constantly in this i need to cover up a lot of them don't have sunblocks they don't want to get burned but the more you, things you put on your body the hotter you are mm -hmm. uh, and then of course carrying the water with you and if you run out of water. So it, it can be pretty rough. Um, I haven't seen the pictures from this caravan, but normally when migrants have to walk this far, which they um, a lot of them have to do in Southern Mexico, uh, when they get to the first some of the first rest stops and you look at the bombs of their feet, they're completely torn up with blisters that kind of expanded across the soles of their feet and then burst um, and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty awful, actually. So the conditions of walking this amount, of uh, sleeping on the ground often, of eating whenever someone offers you food, um, it's it's certainly it's certainly not conditions that people would go through voluntarily. Mm -hmm. um, if they didn't, if they had any other choice, they would surely take that over journeying on foot across Mexico. Has there been reports of any deaths within the caravan? There was a death, um, I'm trying to remember, when they were crossing through uh, the border bridge. I don't remember the exact, um, I don't remember the exact circumstance. It might have been someone jumped off the bridge, or I can't remember, but there was one death that was had to do with kind of as the group was moving forward and clashing with the police and the mayhem. Uh, but other than that, I don't think there has been um, if you looked at injuries and how people are feeling and their general health as they arrive to Mexico City, I'm sure that would be a different story. There'd be a lot more cases of people who, um, who are definitely in need of medical attention once they arrive. Now, what role does the United States have in creating some of these issues for uh, the people within the caravan, if any? There, again, it depends how far you want to go back. So if you want to even go back to the civil wars in El Salvador and... I mean, particularly Guatemala, you can see the U.S. involvement often in 
in propping in kind of pushing for involvement in the beginnings of some of these wars and continuing them um, definitely have a legacy of intervention in these countries uh, particularly on the issue of MS-13 as I mentioned uh, you have LC of Salvadoran refugees who are fleeing their civil war to the United States mm -hmm. of which the US has a role in perpetuating this war they get to the US to seek asylum many didn't receive it uh, and they're living in California and marginalized neighborhoods and they're dealing with other gangs some other Mexican gangs other other local gangs and you see the formation of the Mara Salvatrucha which turned into MS-13 and you have Salvadoran gangs joining the slightly older Barrio 18 or 18th Street gang um, these gangs in 1996 you have a change in immigration policy which allows people to be deported back for less mi for more minor offenses less serious offenses so you have this then uh, mass deportation of tens of thousands of people over the uh, next few years of, of gang members straight out of the LA jails and mm. other jails around the country who are sent back to Central America just as these wars wrap up. And so you have this post-conflict uh, situation happening in Guatemala and El Salvador, and at the same time you have tens of thousands of gang members arriving. What, what happened there? Well, there's uh, a lot of gang members who hadn't been back in those countries for a long period of time. Um, they took a lot of the, the LA gang culture and they replicated it across these countries. Mm -hmm. And it metastasized. And so now you have gangs like MS-13 and Barrio 18 that have, that control large portions of territory across some of the cities in the region. Um, and they've, if you see a map of, say, uh, San Salvador, and you look at the different areas, the different neighborhoods that each ga gang controls, it's like a patchwork quilt. Because mm -hmm. it's like this, these blocks, it's, it's controlled by MS-13, and these on this side, it's, Barrio it's this faction of Barrio 18. And, this, and so you have kind of this breakup of all these invisible barriers, and it's created a lot of the security issues that you see people now fleeing from, from, mm -hmm. from San Salvador again, from Tegucigalpa, San Pedro Sula, Guatemala City. They're fleeing from the gang violence, which originally can be linked back to uh, kind of the unit, the way that these former refugees formed these gangs in LA and then brought all these practices back to the region. So it's kind of this circular <laughs> movement of people that has not been so, has not turned out so well for Central America. So you also spoke about some previous caravans kind of getting to Mexico City and then kind of dispersing. Um, for those that carried on to the U.S. border, the U.S.-Mexico border, what was their experience like? Did the U.S. accept most, all, how many, like how, how does the U.S. tend to deal with those ones that journeyed on? So there have been previous caravans. Uh, certainly, I think you, you see people moving in caravans at least for the past 10 years, probably longer, but they weren't as organized or definitely not as large. Most of them took place during Semana Santa, so the Holy Week, and were religious-based with a migrant carrying the cross, and they were kind of walking, reenacting um, Jesus's last steps as they move forward to bring um, visibility to the plight of these transit migrants. Now in 2017, you have uh, Pueblo uh, Sin Fronteras, which is an organization, kind of pro-migrant organization. They went down in Tapachula. They organized 
uh, a caravan, and then you see them doing something similar in April of this year. These caravans, so let's take the last one, so the April 2018 one. They were smaller. That one was the largest of all the caravans to date at that point, mm -hmm. and it was probably, by the time I got to Mexico City, around 1,000 people, uh, maybe less. Maybe five to 700 continued onward. So again, this is still smaller. And maybe two to 300 sought asylum, and then some other people tried to sneak in between ports of entry. It's, it's a large number of people to arrive at one time to ask for asylum. Mm -hmm. Um, and it complicates the, the situation on the border, which is already extremely backlogged with asylum claims. Most people think that if you just can get to a port of entry, you can seek asylum and come on in. Mm -hmm. But that's not how it works right now yeah. because of the backlog. So in Tijuana, you have probably between 1,500 and 2,500 people who are waiting. And currently you go, you get a number, and then you have to wait over a month to even go to the port of entry to ask for asylum. So it's... Um, it's pretty complicated, and, and what these groups will come up is they'll just come up and they'll clog the system even further. Mm -hmm. um, and then the U.S. Border Patrol will continue to act because an additional 200 migrants moving between a port of entry in you know, a normal case where there's 50,000 people coming a month isn't really going to be a make-it-or-break-it situation for the Border Patrol. There's certainly staffed well enough to handle that, that increase. It's really at the ports of entry where it clogs it up much more. So what, I don't think most people know exactly what this asylum process is. What exactly is the asylum process? So if you are uh, seeking asylum, so let's say um, you're a Salvadoran and you're going to come up and seek asylum, U.S. law says that if you're in U.S. territory, regardless of whether you go to a port of entry or you ask for asylum between ports of entry, so you say jump the border wall or you cross the river and you're on the other side. Once you're in U.S. territory, you are allowed under current U.S. law to ask for asylum. The process this looks like once you make that claim, and asylum being the exact same definition as refugee law, you have to be facing individualized persecution based on your religion, nationality, uh, political opinion, ethnic group, or as you're part of a membership of a particular social group. Once you make that claim to a Border Patrol agent or to a customs officer at a port of entry, you, depending on your demographic, you're going to go through a different process. Mm -hmm. So if you're an unaccompanied child, uh, you're going to go through one process where you'll be um, processed by the Border Patrol and then you're moved to the Office of Refugee Resettlement and you will eventually, after about a month, be released or less, be released to a sponsor while your case begins. If you are, that's because we have laws, uh, that Florida's agreement, which says that you cannot detain a child for more than 20 days. Now, if you have, if you're a family, so an adult with a child, you make your claim either to a border patrol agent or to at a port of entry, and you are processed, but then you are transferred to family detention, which is under ICE, control and to get out of family detention, you have to pass a credible fear interview. Most people do pass this credible fear interview. And then from there, you have one year since you entered the U.S. to file your asylum case. Mm -hmm. If you're, and again, they're released after about a month if they pass a credible fear interview because, uh, again, Flores, the Flores Agreement says you cannot detain children. Now, if you're a single adult and you request asylum, the chances that you are detained through your entire case 
are fair are pretty high depending on capacity mm-hmm. but they're going to be pretty high which is actually also why um there's more people bringing their children it's if you can i mean if they know about this this um the process and smugglers do know about this process then it's easier to be to bring a child to be to begin your case outside of detention rather mm-hmm. than having to wait the whole time um so that's that's generally the way that the process looks like at the border. Uh, once you're in and once you file your case in the U.S. court, uh, the backlog right now is such that you're looking at years before uh, your case is looked at. So how does some of these, or how do some of these migrants claim asylum status if I didn't hear economic uh, issues in there? So like, or economic uh, hardships in there? So that doesn't seem to be encapsulated within asylum seekers. So. so this is exactly what, so this is kind of the crux of a lot of the debate right now. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's the, this is what the Trump administration has been, and the Obama administration to a certain extent, but really this has been the, the issue of the Trump administration, which is that they believe that a lot of these claims are fraudulent, mm-hmm. that they're economic migrants and that they're coming to the U.S. and they claim asylum because it's a pathway in, but they don't actually have a good asylum claim to be able to stay. Um, so that's the, that's kind of at the heart of a lot of the current policy, which then becomes the Trump administration trying to say, well, what can we do to stop these fraudulent claims? Uh, and so what they've tried to do has been uh, zero tolerance, which is um, charging everyone, with saying go through a port of entry and making and family separation, uh, which was basically, well, if you look back at John Kelly when he was interviewed the previous year, so in 2017, I think it was March 2017, he says family separation would be a good deterrence policy. So they're trying to deter people from making this journey. Um, you hear them talk a lot about these fraudulent asylum claims. The other thing they've been trying to do is to push, is to make uh, Mexico a safe third country, which would be to it basically, I mean, if you come into, if you're Central American, you cross through Mexico, you'd have to make your claim in Mexico. You wouldn't be banned from making it in the United States. Um, so all this to try to think of a way to stop what they see as the quote-unquote loophole and the quote-unquote catch and release, uh, which is basically at the core, their belief that a large percentage of these claims are fraudulent. They've also recently tried to, similar to the Obama administration, who did the same thing, to hold families in detention indefinitely. Um, again, to try to stop that, getting at the same issues. Um, mm-hmm. But to date, I mean, the Obama administration wasn't allowed to do that by the courts, and the Trump administration also has not been able to do that. So that's, but that really is kind of all of these motions going one way and the other and trying to deal with it, really get at the, at what your question was asking. So then what's the answer then? Like if, if, if economics, uh, hardships don't technically fall under asylum seekers or what, what you can apply for as, a, as an asylum seeker, then what, what's the answer then? In my opinion, the answer has to be one of, well, several things. But first of all, people are leaving because their situations are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are the U.S. or you're these countries' governments, what you'd want to be doing, number one, is finding ways to make the situation better. We've seen this in the past in the Alliance for Prosperity and in past uh, policies, but a lot of those uh, 
policy programs have been trying to make long-term benefit, or kind of long-term improvements to the country, uh, such as investing in the police and uh, investing in education. Mm -hmm. And that's great, but for a small farmer who just lost their crops from a drought, they need something else that's going to change their day-to-day reality. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, I think it's targeting, um, there's some of that already, there's USAID food assistance, our World Food Program assistance, um, but I do think there has to be a shift towards looking at the short-term realities of people and also trying to provide aid that makes significant changes in those, uh, in people's daily lives, not just on the long term. The second thing where I think people need to be looking, or the U.S. government needs to be looking to try to address this, is creating temporary work visas. Mm-hmm. If people, so on one hand, if you can invest in ways to try to either A, make small changes that affect people who are poor or low income, or B, uh, perhaps stimulate the economy to get them something immediately, you can reduce the pressure, the migratory pressure for economic migrants, at least in the short term. And then on the flip side, you could also do that by using U.S. temporary work visas. Uh, Right now, if you're a poor farmer and you're starving and your children can't eat three meals a day, there's no legal pathway for you to get to the United States. Mm -hmm. These people do not have enough money even to get a tourist visa to go (laughs) and stay, overstay that visa. Number two, they don't have a family member often who has a legal status to be able to sponsor them. Mm -hmm. And three, they don't have a work offer from a U.S. company. Mm -hmm. So without those three things, you're ineligible for an immigrant visa. So what do you do? Uh, And I think in an ideal world, you'd see something change with the immigration system here, but that's been stagnated for so long. So it flips, and I think one of the maybe easier paths would be reorienting our current H2A, H2B visas to target Central Americans, and particularly target Central Americans coming from municipalities that have high rates of outward migration. Mm -hmm. If we believe that people from these municipalities in, say, the Guatemala Highlands where there's low levels of violence and there isn't a large gang presence, but high levels of outward migration, if we believe they're economic migrants, and we have the data from apprehension data and from survey data in the country of where they're coming from, mm-hmm. you could absolutely design a program that would try to uh, provide temporary work visas to these individuals so they could go make money and then return home to their, con- to their families and to their communities. Mm-hmm. So I think that, in short, how do you even think about addressing the fraudulent claims. I think the focus has been tightening the the asylum law and trying to take out, um, I think Jeff Sessions decided that uh, domestic violence would no longer be a particular social group, so people fleeing extreme domestic violence should no longer qualify for asylum. So they've been trying to tighten the restrictions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think instead of doing that, a better response would be to again invest in improving people's daily lives, create alternative pathways, and try to pull out the economic migrants in the system into these other channels or with these other solutions rather than just tightening the asylum case law, tight, you know, more making it more narrow because then you're gonna start having legitimate cases uh, which should receive protection mm-hmm. and they'll begin to fall outside of the kind of parameters that they're putting on asylum. Now, going back to this Trump administration, we've also seen President Trump uh, begin to up his rhetoric, uh, kind of attack them even more than uh, he did just just a few weeks ago. And we've also seen people within his administration and even other Republicans and even a lot on Fox News, uh, they've gone into this really attack mode on a lot of these uh, 
asylum seekers, I think on Fox News, they were talking about how they're going to bring polio and AIDS and HIV to the U.S. And so uh, why do you think they're upping the ante now on this kind of rhetoric? I think the Republicans have always uh, used the border, at least in the past. Probably you could go, historians would correct me and go back even further, but certainly from the Bush administration onward, both the Republicans and the Democrats, to be fair, have used the border as a way to get hard on national security. Securing the border, um, it's kind of to show your your bona fides, like, look at me, I'm, I'm tough. I'm tough, and yeah. I'm putting people here, and I'm block. you know, I'm going to stop drugs and people from entering uh, between ports of entry. So I don't think that this is technically, when you're taking a mile high view looking down, this is just kind of a continuation in a sense of what the Trump administration is doing. You have this this symbol, uh, which is the caravan, which is visible, and you can point to it and you can say they're coming for us and we're going to block and it's kind of all this political theater. And so you have this, you know, positioning and posturing on national security and immigration. And I think, why do they keep doing it? Because on some level, it has to be playing well. Mm -hmm. There has to be people out there who aren't following these issues that closely because they have a lot of other things going on in their lives. And they tune in for, you know, a couple for the news or uh, a couple of videos on Facebook, and they see thousands of people running across the southern border. And it's, you know, it's scary. It's, oh, wow, wait, well, who are these people? Why are they coming? Are they coming to the U.S.? And then, you know, you could imagine a leader taking, you know, one hand, which is explaining U.S. border law and explaining a bit about the context of Central America and trying to say we have laws on the border. And, you know, but that's, you know, that's a little wonky. And if you're mm -hmm. right before a midterm, maybe you want to just go out and you point invasion, get them out. And if your base is supporting that and responding well, then you have all the incentives to keep pushing that and to push it as far as you can until you start seeing pushback mm -hmm. from the people that you want to be voting for you. Um, and that's kind of cynical, but I, I do think that's, that's certainly what's happening. Um, I think you, you see the Obama administration on, on the other side, and I imagine kind of what they would have done. And I think it would have been, the, whether or not we would have sent the army, I have no idea, um, but you probably would have seen a, a much more kind of measure, the way that they handled the 2014 um, increase in unaccompanied minors, mm -hmm. which was talking about it as a humanitarian crisis, using the language of that, talking about the importance of border security, but kind of managing, balancing the humanitarian needs with the border security. And I think uh, we've lost the humanitarian side yeah. with this administration, and we've gone 100% to the the border security, which isn't a crazy shift, but when you lose that other side, it just really highlights. Um, it just really highlights how you're you're only looking at this as a threat. And I hadn't seen some of that stuff on the um, on the diseases, but that's that's just fear mongering and xenophobia um, at that level. Mm -hmm. it, that's that's a shift because up in that's not border security anymore. Yeah. That's just not. Uh, that's just fear-mongering. So now there's a couple arguments that you always hear when it comes to why no one in the caravan should be let in. So I'm just going to go through like a quick couple, okay. and then I just want to see what you're going to say back. And right. So uh, one of the most common things is that if we allow them in, uh, it's akin to having an open border policy here in the U.S. Uh, what do you think of that argument? 
Well, I don't really understand that argument because it's not that... I don't know how we would let them in. I guess let them in by coming to the border and asking for asylum. Yeah. Uh, then that's not really open border. That's just following our laws. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another one is um, a lot of these people are going to come here and steal American jobs. Uh, what do you say to that? I would say let's take a second and let's look at the let's look at some numbers. You know, we're a country of over 320 million people. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a caravan of 5,000 people, yeah. of which maybe 1,000 will arrive, yeah. of which maybe 500 to 700 are going to seek asylum. I think, you know, we need a second to take a deep breath <laughs> and to think about what we're dealing with. Uh, and also maybe take a historical perspective, which is that over the past few years, apprehensions of the southern border are around 400,000 people each year. Okay, that sounds like a lot. That's 400,000. How can we absorb that many people? All you have to do is go back to 2000, and there were 1.6 million apprehensions at the border. So we're at one-fourth of the level that we were at in 2000. And so I think think there is a... I think we just have to be a little more... That would be my first thing is, okay, we have to understand that the challenge is not that there's more people crossing than ever before. The challenge right now is that there's more women and children and families crossing, and it's a system that's designed for single men traveling for economic reasons. And so you're straining the immigration courts and you're straining these family detention centers because that's not what the system was meant, was built for, mm-hmm. not these populations. Um, as for stealing the jobs, will there be certain sectors of the economy uh, not from the 5,000 people in the caravan, uh, but from large-scale uh, large immigration, low-skilled immigration, will that affect probably, to what extent? Very little. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you see kind of over and over uh, that economists point to is you might keep wages then perhaps flatter than they would be, mm-hmm. um, but you're looking at dollars difference often. Uh, this isn't really moving the needle too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the flip side, you also have more workers. You have a larger, you have more people who are also spending money in your country. Mm-hmm. Um, and a larger population, especially a larger, younger population as our country ages, helps to keep our economy dynamic and growing. Um, we don't have to face a lot of the challenges that other developed countries have with aging populations. So there, there are, for specific subgroups, specifically low-skilled workers, there might be an effect but there's also going to be net benefits, in my, I think, for in our the dynamism that we have and in the the kind of age structure of welcoming in um, a lot of people. But then again, I'm also not in one of those <laughs> low-skilled <laughs> sectors, so maybe I'm I'm slightly biased. Um, and probably the most cynical uh, kind of response to this is um, it's really sad. But at the end of the day, why do we have to do anything? It's not our responsibility. So I tend to think that making appeals to people based off of human rights uh, isn't always the um, most persuasive. It persuades some people, and then you do get a lot of people that answer back, well, that's sad, but what do we do? I think for those people, I'd say right now this isn't about human rights. This is about following the laws, that the United States laws at the border. And we have laws that say that if you show up at a port of entry, you can seek asylum. And that is our, that those are international laws that we've signed on to. 
And those are also written in our own domestic legal code. So we're not, you know, this isn't at the end of the day, (laughs) what to do with the people showing up at the ports of entry is not a let them in, let them not, we're a good person, so we're going to bring them in. It's we have to follow our own laws. And until as long as those laws are on the books, then our public, you know, our border officials have to follow them, as do our public leaders. So that's that would be my answer. It's not it's not about the morality. It's about right now. If people are telling migrants <laughs> that are crossing ports of order, uh, ports of entry that they need to follow the law and go back to their country and enter through a legal channel, then the kind of flip side of that is well, then people who show up and, and do try to enter legally, we should follow our own laws and ensure that they're processed properly. So final question, hypothetically, what would you say and what would your plan be if President Trump asked for your input on how to solve this issue? That would be, that'd be fun. Um, (laughs) I would... Unlikely, but... Highly unlikely. Uh, I think I kind of, going back to some of the things that I mentioned earlier, I would... I think I would I would start in, in a two kind of pronged approach. Uh, no, I'd probably start in a three pronged approach. Um, the first would be for the security, the people who are fleeing for, for security concerns. I think I'd look at ways to expand the asylum system right now uh, to have more in-country processing or third country processing so that people wouldn't have to get to the US border and clog those ports of entry to be able to seek asylum that they could request asylum in a U.S. consulate or U.S. embassy across Mexico or have smaller programs in country for specific groups of people, perhaps minors or um, elderly people, something like that. I'd try to expand that so that you don't have this incredible kind of buildup and and backlog happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. Second, um, so that's just on the asylum. Second, to make sure that those are real asylum cases and to try to pull out the fraudulent economic claims as well as make uh, the situation better for people who are hungry because hunger is a real motivating force. And if you've been hungry for months and your children haven't eaten three meals a day, that is that is a true motivation. Things begin to feel very desperate and feel like survival to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and on there, I would definitely try to enact policies or enact work with the governments to target um, Probably not focused on food aid because that's pretty temporary, mm-hmm. um, but perhaps stabilization plans and commodity stabilization plans, things that our U.S. Department of Agriculture looks at doing here, um, and try to stabilize, say, the coffee production. Um, as that's currently the biggest industry, I think we're talking about it, uh, the r- biggest rural employer. Right now, the coffee prices are so low. Uh, globally and the cost of producing is so high and so trying to stabilize it so that all those rural employees continue to have a job at least in the short term mm-hmm. until they can switch to other crops uh, and that way you don't have a collapse in the coffee industry and an exodus of people leaving the country which is what we're seeing now so trying to use funds trying to use stabilization mechanisms to ensure that parts of the economy don't collapse. That would be kind of my immediate take. And then I do think some type of, you have to create extra legal pathways um, for economic migrants, and of which I think the temporary guest worker program would be the best and the most potentially feasible in Congress. Um, So if you were really kind of invested in trying to think creatively, you'd have to think about it for the security side. How do you provide more protections for people and not have it be backlogged on the economic side? Uh, 
what legal channels can you create? And then mm-hmm. also, what steps can you take creatively thinking with the governments? Because the U.S. doesn't, can't and shouldn't fund these things 100%. Mm-hmm. But working with partners, Canada, the EU, the United Nations, the Inter-American Development Bank, and these countries themselves, what are the types of policies or stabilization mechanisms to ensure that you know people's livelihoods continue, at least in the short term, and they don't have the need uh, to, they're not going hungry, and so migration becomes, you know, the best of a lot of bad options. Well, thank you for your time today, Professor. Uh, hopefully, we maybe took away some of those arguments that we hear from people on the right uh, in demonizing some of these people who are just trying to make a or find a better life for themselves. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. This whole episode was about the caravan. Following the midterm election, most talk about the caravan has completely stopped. It is clear that the president and much of the Republican Party used the caravan as a way to bolster their case for re-election. But we, as a nation, should be better than that. Too often, the country gives into its xenophobic and racial tendencies. We are a country of immigrants. Very few of us are actually originally American, whatever that may mean. Professor Luther said making moral arguments doesn't usually work, but I hope that changes sometime. Being a kind, moral person involves helping those who need it most. And right now, we're seeing a large number of people who need that help. Let's not give in to those historic tendencies that have held us back. You've been listening to Page One. Thanks to my guest, Stephanie Luther, and a continued thanks to the Page One team. If you like what you've heard, spread the word or give us a review. We appreciate either. Subscribe to Page One on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Email us at pageonepod at gmo.com with comments or questions, and follow us at pageonepod on Twitter. See you soon.